Hello, Duncan Green here uh, with the up latest update of Posts on From Poverty to Power. Oh, my holiday seems like a million miles away, but one thing lingers on, and that's the backlog of The Economist. It's like Charlie Chaplin in modern times or painting the fourth bridge. You know, you just have to kind of keep plowing through. And I, just as you're getting to the end of one issue, another one plops through the letterbox. Uh, the trouble is the content's so good um, that I don't want to, you know, just skip it. So one piece which caught my eye uh, this week, which is in links I liked, the first post of the week, is the figures on remittances um, to Latin America and the Caribbean from uh, migrants working overseas. And the numbers for 2022 are in, and they're amazing. So in 2022, Latin America and the Caribbean received $142 billion, 48% more than in 2019 before COVID hit. Uh, Mexico received $60 billion and overtook China and is now only second to India. And the populations of China and India are like, you know, 10 times greater than Mexico's. So quite extraordinary amounts of money. And if you do it in comparison to the size of the economy, Honduras is the biggest. It's got uh, the remittances to Honduras are over a quarter of the whole economy. So just really interesting that that. The, the remittances just are incredibly resilient. Migrants keep sending money home during crises. They often send more home during crises. It's counter-cyclical in the jargon. Uh, and they are far more than aid. I mean, 142 billion is not far sh short of the entire global aid budget. So just an enormous source of, of money going to poor and middle-class families by and large, and something we should really always be aware of and think about when we're talking about development. The second one was a bit of a grumpy one. So uh, I decided that I was suffering from something I called the disappointment cycle of reading new papers. And this was about a paper called Aid in Politically Estranged Settings. So, you know, when, what happens is that the initial question or framing gets me excited. There's a new term like politically estranged, which catches your eye. This is really going to tell me something new or interesting. But then the paper peters out and, and you end up with the standard prescriptions, vague generalizations and needs more research at the end. And this was my feeling with a new paper from Chatham House and New York University. Um, and the, the subtitle is How Donors Can Stay and Deliver in Fragile and Conflict-Affected States, which is a subject I, I'm, I dear to my heart. I'm, I'm working on in Papua New Guinea. I've worked on in a number of countries. And so I wanted to find out more. So the starting point is that more than 49% of people in countries on the World Bank's list of fragile and conflict-affected states now live in situations where relations between national authorities and major donors have broken down. This is the phrase politically estranged. So these are situations where ruling authorities have taken power uh, by force, states are under comprehensive international sanctions, societies are coming back slowly to some kind of constitutional order after a coup or a military government, or elections are massively disputed and they are increasing. Those, the, those situations are increasing. So this is really interesting, right? So, so much of aid, especially from bilateral, from governments and multilateral donors like the World Bank, who provide the vast bulk of it, rests on relationship between donors and governments. So what do you do when those relationships break down? So one option is for donors to walk away, but the paper argues that there are sound national interest geopolitical, collective security and ethical reasons for donors to stay engaged in these estranged settings. 
While development aid by itself cannot prevent conflict or instability, its suspension can exacerbate fragility. Suspension of aid can deepen suffering, prompt further displacement of people and strain humanitarian aid, already responding to more than 340 million people in need worldwide. Withdrawal erodes societal capacities and institutions, increases the risk of negative spillovers, especially to neighbouring countries and regions, and can intensify geopolitical competition. Yep, agree with all that. The paper argues that political estrangement hacks away at some of the basic plumbing of the aid relationship. Accountability breaks down when states don't play ball. Lack of, lack of information makes efforts at, in, of, at inclusion of, for example, of minority groups very hard to monitor. The infrastructure for delivering basic services may not exist. Try delivering humanitarian aid when there is no functioning system for currency exchange, for example. And finally, these contexts are often chaotic. Constant adaptations required, which, as I've said many times on the blog, is not exactly the aid industry's strong point. So then promises a range of options exists for donors to remain engaged without ignoring the sources of estrangement. And that's where my disappointment set in. Right? The so what's for donors are collaboration across the humanitarian development and peace nexus to build and maintain domestic support in donor countries, to establish and communicate clear expectations with national actors, basically governments and civil society and community groups, design delivery modalities and oversight mechanisms and adapt programming rapidly to circumstances. Wow, big whoop. This is just far too close to business as usual. And the menu of options that it then comes up with looks really, really un uninteresting. So take the toughest contexts, right? So these are places which are very high risk and the government has very little willingness to engage. And the recommendations are basically shove more money through NGOs and direct communities, zoom out to regional dialogues to try and get some traction on the government and start paying nurses and teachers directly. Really? Uh, so what about, for example, looking for pockets of effectiveness? So bits which are not estranged particular ministries, maybe, or subnational governments that are working okay and want to engage with donors. Manchester University's ESID programme has done some great work on this, and I'll put a link in the, in the post. Um, what about the whole area of work around public authorities that, that I've been involved with at the, uh, the LSE? You know, in these kind of places, often the real authorities are not the government. They're faith organisations, traditional leaders, you know, and and they have legitimacy, they have scale, they could be potentially alternative partners to national governments. And that seems much more promising than always looking to find an NGO or a civil society organisation to work with, as the paper suggests, because they are often really small and peripheral in these kind of places. Or, getting a bit more crazy, what about supporting individuals rather than always hunting for projects? Expand scholarship schemes, try and look for current and future leaders, or even my old favourite, positive deviance, right? So in all these places, some things will be working better than others on something like health, for example. So you find out where the existing system has thrown up some less unsuccessful efforts to provide basic services or accountability. Forget about AIDS, just see like, you know, where do fewer kids die? Where do more women get educated? You know, whatever the issue is, look for the positive outliers and see what lessons or practices could be helped to spread. It's a completely different approach something the aid business has not taken on, but when people have tried it, it's got some really good results. So I'd be interested in other suggestions because what's in this paper seems far too conservative. 
So there we are. That's the end of my grumpy rant. Um, next one was a book review. Um, a, an academic looking and sounding book, which I thought had some really interesting content. It's called Reimagining Civil Society Collaborations in Development, Starting from the South. So even the word localization, when you think of it, which is a very sort of big buzzword at the moment, when you think about it, it's actually quite an outsider's word. It suggests taking the assets currently held in the North, money, knowledge, power, and somehow transferring them to the South. And the value of this book, which is edited by Margit van Vessel, Tina Continent, and Justice Nygma Baoli, is captured in the subtitle. It discards that idea and asks how civil society organizations in the South collaborate, both with each other and with funders, both local and international, and what can be learned from that. In the jargon, it focuses on the existing agency of local and national organisations, and I'm increasingly drawn to these kinds of asset-based rather than deficit-based approaches. Let's see what people have got, what's working, what people are using, and what can we learn from that, rather than going and saying, oh, no, you need this, you need that, you need that, right? So start with the assets. So it's pretty long, 340 pages, it's got a lot of conceptual discussion in it, a lot of case studies from Southern civil society organizations around the world, and best of all, it's open access, which means you can read it for free. And for me, I can cut and paste the good bits, which just makes it a much quicker to review. The book asks three big questions. How to reimagine what, who can do what in CSO collaborations when we start from the perspectives of Southern CSOs and acknowledge their agency? Who matters and how, attempting to distance ourselves from the North-South binary, and what new collaborations would look like if starting from the South were more prevalent. Now that could all be very waffly, hand-wavy stuff, but luckily there are lots of case studies which really nail down the answers. Here's one from Kenya by Selma Zilstra and Maya Spierenberg, which I thought was really interesting. It explores the difficult dance between a local CSO, the Malindi Rights Forum, or MRF, its international NGO funders and the community of farmers displaced by the salt industry that both are trying to help. And here's a flavour of its you know, findings, which I think are nuanced and insightful. Um, and it looks at the different kinds of legitimacy that the civil society organisation, the MRF, enjoyed. How did MRF's integration into the aid system impact their legitimacy in the eyes of their constituents? MRF, st MRF still enjoyed considerable legitimacy. It was mainly the normative and pragmatic legitimacy that was ingrained among MRF members as people shared their main goal of getting the land back, as well as shorter term goals such as getting education on land rights or fighting for short term results such as land titling. The new emphasis on women's rights was embraced and also attracted more women to the movement. MRF also showed representational legitimacy as they were seen as a genuine spokesperson for the people. The legal strategies that have been enhanced by funding were a new source of MRF's legitimacy as the organisation brought expertise. Even though community members sometimes recalled with nostalgia the collective spirit and different tactics they had used in the past, people preferred to use the law instead of the panga, which is the sort of machete, because of police repression, but also because they had come to understand their rights which enabled them to fight back with something more forceful than before. So MRF had moved from a confrontational strategy to something using legal argument. However, the shift in strategies demanded a different skill set, a good command of English, knowledge of the law, and the ability to use computers to write letters. Hence, most strategic actions were carried out by MRF 
instead of by the pharma group leaders. Because legal advocacy relies less on active MRF member participation compared with the earlier more collective strategies, the loss of collective spirit necessary for the embodied defence of land rights reinforced processes of demobilisation. Furthermore, MRF's cognitive legitimacy, which means constituents seeing the MRF as one of us, was affected as community members started to look at the office differently when the volunteers from the early days were replaced by professional staff members. So this is something that keeps coming up. The, the pluses and minuses of professionalization, of acquiring skills which enable you to achieve stuff, but make you but widen the gap between you and the people you're trying to help. It's a, it's a huge conundrum, I think, in development. Pragmatic legitimacy is about being able to satisfy the needs of the community. Many community members indicated that MRF had helped with stopping some of the salt company's expansions. However, the organization's funding also created high expectations. People anticipated they would get their land back quickly. When this proved to be a long and protracted struggle, people started to lose trust in MRF. One senior MRF member indicated that people could not understand why their problems were not solved when the office was receiving millions of Kenyan shillings. The influx of money also created other expectations, such as school bursaries and assistance with hospital visits. So this is another big one. The, the, the arrival of money changes the relationship and that's been uh, research in Pakistan and elsewhere shows just how toxic the arrival of money can be in undermining trust between communities and the CSOs who receive the money. Perhaps the biggest challenge for MRF revolved around their representational legitimacy. Both MRF members and MRF staff recalled how in the past community members chipped in with their own resources. Now people instead expected the office to have sufficient resources and felt that their former sacrifices were no longer required. Without contributing in this way though, the MRF staff felt that people had lost ownership of the struggle. Another unintentional consequence of funding was the culture of reimbursement, which affected collective action and inclusion. This practice served to compensate people for their time when they could have been engaged in income generating activities, considering the high levels of poverty in the area. However, it also created monetization of mobilization, a wonderful phrase. People came to expect allowances in return for their participation in civic education. Although it is fair to say that many people still came to meetings without demanding to receive a budget, the institutionalised practice of reimbursements drained the budget, causing MRF to have to drastically scale down its meetings. Big public meetings became a thing of the past. Meetings were mainly held in rented meeting halls instead of under trees in the villages. The same people showed up to most of these meetings. Although these were highly committed volunteers who often chipped in with their own money to cover transport, the consequence was that MRF became more of a closed network. Many people were not aware that meetings were held and some indicated, oh, it's only for the select few. As the MRF coordinator summarized, funding has helped the program, but it has killed the spirit. That is one of the best summaries of the effect of paying people to attend. It's an impossible thing to get right. Why should people give up a day's work and income to come to a meeting where the NGO people and the CSO people and the government officials are all on salary? Why should they come for free? But when you start paying people per diems, it shifts the whole dynamic. There is no, I've never seen this really solved. It seems to be one of those completely insoluble problems. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and leads to really crazy situations which uh, a colleague once called carpe per diem, 
where you know government officials deliberately attend you know 10 NGO seminars a, a month in order to get the per diems which doubles their wages you know, and that weakens the state and it just makes a mockery of the whole thing so that's just one great Grace Cuddy's uh, case study there's dozens more there's one, one a really good one on um, raising money locally in Pakistan uh, there's one on um, the, 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 the ties of trust and reciprocity that exist in Ghana. Um, and, and generally, it's just an extremely interesting book. It, it pays close attention. Final one, I went there, ChatGBT. Um, you know, I, I started playing with it recently and it is just fascinating. It's incredibly easy to use, even for someone who's rubbish at technology like me. If you haven't played around with it yet, you really must do. I think it's going to be such an important game changer for all sorts of things. And I discuss in the last post of the week the implications for teaching, how it analyzes Brexit, and the link to psychoanalysis. So there are people who are, you know, you could call refuseniks. They're saying, you know, this is just another kind of plagiarism. It's crowdsourced. We've got to stop it. We've got to stop students using it at the LSE. We must never use it at Oxfam. You know, this is poison. Um, we've got, if we do use it, it's got to be you know, absolutely massive health warnings and all the rest of it. I don't think that's going to work. I mean, this feels like this is going to become an absolutely crucial way that people, a part of the way people generate knowledge, uh, and it's going to be really, I think it's going to be really helpful. So I'm in the engagement camp. And the question there is, how do we use AI of this kind to save time and make us smarter? It seems to me it's like, it's like a kind of personalized Wiki Wikipedia. Um, you know, it's, and I think it's it's a new starting point. And off, on the basis of AI and and the chat, chat GPT and it's and the the similar ones that are popping up all over the place, your students can then you know start further along. And then you begin, then the, the the trick is to train your critical eye, fact check because it makes stuff up in a really weird way, spot gaps and critique, which as far as I know, it doesn't do very well. You know, what is not it? What is not there? What's the Where's the literature weak and that kind of thing. So AI geek Rowan Chung has a nice tweet, which I linked to highlighting five main uses that he can see. Initial brainstorming, summarizing, rewriting difficult text for a beginner. So maybe I should try it on the blog. Changing the style. So you, you ask, you know, I asked, um, ChatGPT to rewrite an Oxfam document in the style of Tolstoy. It was brilliant. It was so good. I really much preferred the, the Tolstoy version, although um, I'm not sure we should probably do that routinely. Uh, or you can ask it to edit your work as a kind of first go at a copy edit. So, in, yeah, from the point of view of teaching at the LSE, it's quite hard to distinguish ChatGPT generated text from an average student essay. Uh, LSE's guidance, you know, sends, I, I sort of give it its list of things to look for, but it includes things like prone to verbosity and hyperbole, um, non sequiturs, an absence of insight. Well, yeah, okay, but that, that just means it's either chat GPT or a not very good student. Uh, there are some things which, which are more of a giveaway, like um, yeah, out of sequence numerical ra ranges, um, Padded random archaic words like Jeremiah. I'd love it if my student used Jeremiah, but there we go. And, and just things which are completely factually incorrect or draw on non existent sources. It also does that. But, you know, that's not a great help. I asked ChatGPT to, to uh, use one of the frameworks we use for uh, thinking about power visible, hidden, and invisible power 
to explain the 2016 Brexit vote in the UK. And what I got was, um, yeah, this is uh, the work of Stephen Luke's. So uh, the, it, it perfectly adequately summarizes that framework. Visible power refers to the ability to make decisions and enforce them through the use of authority, coercion or force. Hidden power refers to the ability to shape the agenda and influence decision making through the control of information, resources or access to decision makers. Invisible power refers to the ability to shape people's preferences and beliefs and to control the terms of public debate so that certain issues are excluded or marginalized. That's very nice. I mean, I, thought, I think that's great. Then when we get on to Brexit, visible power, the decision to hold a referendum on EU membership was made by the UK government led by the Conservative Party. Uh-huh. The government had the power to set the terms of the referendum, including the question that was put to the electorate. However, the government failed to anticipate the consequences of the referendum, and the result was a shock to many in the political establishment. That is like high school stuff, right? And then it is a bit, bit, bit better on hidden and invisible power, but, you know, nothing that great. So nothing actually wrong. But I thought the content was pretty average. And this is where I think it gets interesting because I think the art with AI is going to be what you then ask it to follow up on. Because you can get, you can keep coming back to it and say, could you think a bit more about this or a bit more about that? It's going to be the dialogue between the human user and AI, which is going to generate good content. Now, the best thing I've read so far on this is a wonderful essay in The Economist comparing AI to the invention of the browser, the printing press, and the practice of psychoanalysis. And I particularly like the analogy with psychoanalysis. Um, and it's a kind of new ways to think about AI. So basically they're saying AI is like a troubled individual, um, you know, which tells lies, has meltdowns, gets angry with people, but also says some really interesting stuff. So rather than sort of try and reduce that individual to individual brain cells or individual uh, you know, neural networks, think about it as an individual, as a whole individual. And so there's a paragraph here, which I quoted, winkling out non-conscious biases acquired in the pre-verbal infancy of training, dealing with the contradictions behind hallucinations when it just makes stuff up, regularizing rogue desires. Ideas from psychotherapy might be seen as helpful analogies for dealing with the pseudo-cognitive AI transition, even by those who reject all notion of an AI mind. The concentration on the relationship between parents or programmers and their children could be welcome too. What is it to bring up an AI well? It's a bit like a Tamagotchi, but you know, on speed. What sort of upbringing should, upbringing should be forbidden? To what extent should the creators of AIs be held responsible for the harms done by their creation? Wow, I mean, that's just so interesting as a different way of thinking about AI. And then to get silly at the end, I asked uh, AI to rephrase its work on Brexit in the form of rhyming couplets, haikus, and a limerick. Now, the rhyming couplets were pretty average. The best haiku I quite liked, actually. Invisible force, alienation the source, Brexit their recourse. That's pretty good, um, but absolutely terrible at limericks. The Brexit vote was full of power. Both seen and unseen, it did tower. The government set the stage, but hidden forces were all the rage and disaffection proved to be its flower. That is, it doesn't scan. It's absolutely awful, but there we go. So that's reassuring. So if you want to really test Brexit, I mean, test your students, get them to submit in, in limerick form, um, although that might be a bit unkind. Uh, but we all have to get familiar with uh, 
the the chat GBT and its and its and its um, rivals and get good at this because this is going to make such a huge change to the way we think and work. And on that note, have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Bye.